0: Some of you probably will remember this a lot better than I did, but in 2013, the mighty Florida Gators football team hit rock bottom. They fell 26 to 20 to FCS opponent, Georgia Southern I was here for Georgia Southern, yeah, um, yeah, and so uh, sorry Gators, but obviously things have changed again. So this was uh, Florida's seventh loss in a row. but what stood out to me at the time, I did remember this coming kind of, through ESPN and, and on uh, websites, uh, this happened during the game. I, and I got a picture of it to show you that it actually happened. They, these two Gator uh, guys were actually blocking one another, all right? And so if it's not bad enough that you're facing an opponent and you're struggling, then to turn around and use your energies to fight against your own team definitely doesn't make very much sense, right? That's, that's exhausting. But sadly, many Christians are doing the same thing. The very person who empowers our faith, we fight against often. And then we turn around and we fight against one another as well. And so while there will never be a picture of church members up here doing this to one another, or you and Jesus doing that, it happens all the time. So as we return to Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be in verse 27 through 30, Paul reminds Christians that this life that we're in is, is truly a battle. We're in a battle And we have a real enemy that we need to be fighting. And let's make sure that we're not fighting against our Savior, Jesus. or fighting against fellow Christians. Let's put our energies into fighting the true enemy. So, verse 27, let's pick up and read 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Let's pray and we'll look at this text. Father God, this is your word and Father, as we open it, we stand in respect of you, the author and of your words that will remain forever. And God, these words are life and truth to us. And we admit that we need the nourishment, we need the encouragement of the Holy Spirit illuminating these words and making them ruin our lives because it is a battle that we're in. And we forget that a lot, and we will see today in our lives, Lord willing, that we often lose sight of this battle and spend our time on frivolous things. And God, I pray that you will move us one step closer to you and more passionate about your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you look on the screen at the entire text that we're looking at today? Put up all the verses, all right? So look at all the words in this passage, this short little four verses that relate to military or to conflict. you got standing firm, striving. He talks about opponents. He talks about destruction and suffering, and he talks about engaging, and he talks about conflict. And so Scripture is crystal clear that the Christian life is seriously a battle. And author Scott Hubbard speaks for many Christians when he writes this. He says, When I entered the Christian life, I had no idea I was walking into a war. I felt at first like a man parachuting over the glories of salvation, finally awake to Christ, finally safe from sin, finally headed to heaven. But soon I landed in a country I didn't recognize and amid a fight I wasn't ready for. And so like Mr. Hubbard, many of us came to Christ without truly understanding this conflict that was going to happen. And and part of that is as a result of many pastors and churches who promote an unbiblical form of Christianity that fails to be real with what the Christian life is going to be like and what we should expect in this life. And oftentimes Jesus is presented as if he's some genie in a bottle that we pull out when things are tough, things are difficult, and Jesus, we need you in this situation. Boom, Jesus comes. He's going to fix all your problems, take care of everything for you, and then you put him back in your bottle and you carry on with your life. Many people sell a form of Christianity like that, that Jesus is there just to make your life better, and blessings are simply kind of narrowed down to money, homes, better wife, better family, and all these things that we can get our eyes on as being the main things in our life. And Jesus made it very clear, and Paul makes it very clear, that, that we need to expect that this life will be a conflict. And when we signed up to follow Jesus, we weren't just signing up for some good, easy, comfortable life with him, but we were signing up for a spiritual battle. And many times when people come to Christ, they put their faith in Christ, and like Mr. Hubbard, they don't realize what to expect, and one day just, boom, it hits them right in the face. They see how much resistance they actually have because of following Jesus. The early Christians, as Paul's writing this book and this letter to this church at Philippi, there's no question in their mind, they know the risk of putting your faith in Jesus. They see it every single day. They know they've been recruited into the army of Christ, not to war against other human beings, but to war for the gospel, to strive, as Paul is going to say, for the gospel. And so we have real enemies. Do I need to really tell you that this world is your enemy? I mean, we can see it all the time that the world is our enemy. We know our flesh is a real enemy, that the things Paul said we want to do, we don't do, and the things we don't want to do, those are the things we do. And, and sometimes we, like, we can't even focus on our other enemies because we're such a big enemy to ourselves, and we see that's a real battle that we have every single day. And then the devil is a real enemy, and he's the, the, the spirit of this age and the God of this age, and he's working against our faith, and he's trying to steal our joy, he's trying to get us to abandon the fight that we're in. So not only do we have to deal with the world and the flesh and the devil, which are our enemies. But then when Jesus comes and, he, and you come to come to him in salvation and you sign up to be a believer, Jesus says, here's my agenda. All right, this is my agenda. And uh, sadly, the person maybe communicated it to you or you forgot, you're like, uh, you know, I got heaven. I got life eternal, right? I, I didn't even look at the, 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 the agenda that Jesus is putting me on. And so we're going to see that today that Jesus put us on an agenda and he's given us an agenda. Are we on the same page as Jesus or not? So verse 27, Paul tells him, he says, you remember context last week. He said that I may not get out of prison. He, he thinks he's going to. He thinks he's going to be able to return and minister, but he's not sure about that. But he thinks he will. But if he doesn't, he says, whether I come to see you, verse 27, or I'm absent, if I don't get out of here, I may. I want to hear that you're standing firm in the truth. I want to hear that. I want to know that you're living as you should be living regardless of whether I actually show up in person or not. And it's interesting, the word choice that he uses in verse 27. And if you were just reading this on your own and didn't have a context or didn't understand or maybe had a study Bible, you may just miss this completely. But when he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that phrase manner of life in the original language would be, I want you to live as a citizen. In fact, maybe your version of the Bible you're following along may say that. Why is that important? Why is that significant? Because Philippi, the church at Philippi, the Philippians, who he's writing to, they were a Roman city state. And the people were very, very proud of their Roman citizenship. It was a huge deal during this time. Rome ruled the, uh, ruled the known world. But Philippi was some 800 miles from Rome. And so you get the picture that they had all the rights of being a Roman citizen, but they weren't in Rome. And so they dressed like the Romans, they had the language of the Romans, they had the culture of the Romans, but they weren't in Rome. And so Paul picks up on this thought, this idea, and he says, you live as citizens, all right? You're you're on earth, you're living here, but your citizenship is in heaven. And so you need to live this life as a citizen of heaven. Jesus may be not physically on this earth any longer, and you're not physically with him in heaven but you're citizens, so your conduct, the way you carry yourself, the way you live your life, it should be different than the culture around you. It should be something distinct about you. And so just like the, the uh, people at Philippi were living as Roman citizens around other cultures who were not like them, it was very distinctive. They were Romans. And so it should be very distinctive that we are Christians, that we are citizens of Jesus' kingdom. So Paul says, there's no excuses for you not to live this way, even if I don't make it back. Don't depend upon me so much that you don't carry on your faith. You know what would happen. It would be obvious if in a maximum security prison, they decided to all the guards and everyone to go on strike for a day, right? right? We're just not going to work. We're staying home. You guys just run the prison yourself, right? We know what would happen, what that would look like. It would be chaos. It would be mayhem. It would be terrible. But we're capable of a very similar evil when left to ourselves. When left to ourselves, and Paul's warning them, if you fall away from the accountability and the things that I've taught you and the words that I'm giving you in this letter, if you slide back into just living for yourself, then it's going to be chaos. You're just going to blend in and look like everybody else in your society. And so think about that, how that plays out really in our lives, because most of us have a of an accountable system even though you may not have an accountability partner you have a accountable system around you you have family you have employers you have people who kind of just look out for your good people know when something's wrong and so we have this external kind of force keeping us someone in check but what happens when that disappears that maybe reveal what your true heart is clear memory of when i was in first grade miss bennett was my teacher and I don't know why, but Miss Bennett decided to exit the room for a few minutes and left all of us first graders there in the class by ourselves. It was Christmas time. There was a Christmas tree setting up on a six-foot table. And all of a sudden, and this is no joke, I'm not trying to paint myself as the hero here, but it was just the truth. I was like shocked by all of a sudden these kids got started getting up and running wild and going crazy, and one kid even jumped up on the Christmas tree. Well, the Christmas tree fell over, boom, and the floor, you know, all the, the bulbs and, and the, the, the decorations were everywhere, and I, I panicked. I freaked out. I'm like, I'm getting out of here, and I went to the bathroom. We had a bathroom connected to the classroom, And just in a second, the teacher opened the bathroom door. Literally, back in the days when they could do this, I remember her just grabbing me and just pulling me back in class. And I think she thought I was the guilty party because I ran away. I had nothing to do with it. But it was a good reminder that when we don't have accountability in our lives, sometimes we just default to whatever we want to do. We do it, right? So how does that apply to you and I? When you're away from your support system, when you're off on a business trip, when you're away from your Christian friends, what's your life look like at that point? Because I would say that probably reveals the true heart of who you are more than your behavior here on Sunday or in K Group. That kind of pulls, pour, pours, pulls out of you who you really truly are at your heart. And obviously, we're all capable of those type of behaviors. But let's be real here. Paul says it's not an excuse. It's no excuse to live that way when I'm absent. So spiritual leadership is, of course, very vital. Spiritual accountability is very, very vital to our lives. But it's not an excuse to live carelessly. So we need one another. And Paul makes that clear in this passage. We need accountability. Look look at verse 27 again. He said... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. He's talking to this church, standing firm in one spirit. you got one mind, and you're striving side by side for the, for the faith of the gospel. So he says, you're in this together. You need to be together, but you can't allow human accountability to replace Holy Spirit accountability. You can't allow one another, because here's what happens practically, all right? Those who are in Fight Club, you know this to be true. A lot of times, we can replace Holy Spirit accountability with just others' accountability, and we don't do certain things, or we make sure we read our Bible because we got to report to the people in our group, and we don't want to say we weren't reading our Bible, so we better read our Bible, and oftentimes, accountability can become about people-pleasing and making sure others around us affirm what we're doing. And so, we can't allow the, our relationships, as vital and as important as they are, to replace Holy Spirit accountability. So, he says, only let your manner of your life live as a citizen, be worthy of the gospel. So, Paul's not suggesting here that we can earn something. We know Paul's words throughout his epistles. There's no earning God's favor or God's credit. So, no one can be worthy of the gospel in that sense of earning. But this idea of worthy, has the idea of living to match one's position in Christ. Who you are in Christ. We talked a lot about this a few weeks ago. Who you are in Christ, your identity in Christ. He's declared you holy. He's declared you righteous. And then throughout the New Testament, then he says, live like who you are. Who you are, live that way. Become who you are. So he's saying their highest identity is a citizen of heaven So live like it. Conduct your your life in a way that's an asset to the kingdom, not a liability to the kingdom. And it's so easy as we're living our lives to justify the things that we're doing. And that's, that's the hard part when we communicate in such broad terms to such a big group of people is it's hard to individually point out to you where you're justifying your behavior and your sin. But we all do it. We all have this sense of, it's okay because of this. Or, this isn't happening, so therefore I'm entitled to this. And it can be really small or it can be really big. I was trying to think of a personal illustration of this. Back when I was in my early, early 20s, the employer I had at that point asked us to work a golf tournament. This was down in Tallahassee, asked us to work a golf tournament. And they used to have a Nike Pro-Am at Golden Eagle. And so we were required, and I'm pretty sure it was on a Saturday, but it could have been a Friday, we had to go out and we had to work this tournament. But we had a meeting uh, over in the Killarren area at uh, the golf course there to uh, kind of prepare and know what our jobs were and, the, and so on. So I went to this, this meeting, and some of my other, the other people worked with me, but people from all over the city were there to volunteer. And the guy said, okay, to work the tournament, you need one of these shirts, all right, Nike uh, Tour shirts. And he said, they're twenty five dollars. So at the end you can pick up your you know, pick up a shirt, drop off your check. And I felt, I'm doing them a favor. I'm I'm working this tournament. I'm volunteering my time away from my family. And now I have to write a check for twenty five dollars for a shirt. And so, all right, you're pastor here, all right? Before I was pastor, uh, I, I just uh, you know, I just walked by the table, I picked up my shirt while other people were writing their checks and I and I left and walked away. I justified my sin. I justified stealing. You have examples in your life the same way as I do. There's things that you're doing that you're unwilling to listen to the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit and to live in a way that's honoring to the gospel and worthy of the gospel. And this isn't just for individuals. Paul's writing this to a church. And so, Grace Church, we need to have a reputation that we're living worthy of the gospel. Look what Paul says in verse 27 again. He says, I desire to, that, to hear that you're standing firm. So Paul's away from them, but he's desiring that they, he wants to hear about what they're doing. Paul expects that the impact of a church who's living worthy of the gospel would be known far and wide. 800 miles away, if Paul's in Rome. So this, their reputation for doing good and making a difference should be making its way around and getting people to know what's happening here. And so that should be our desire as well. So Paul mentions now three things that he wants to hear about the church at Philippi that he's away from them. He, here's the things that he says, I want to hear these things about you. And we can learn from these. Look at, at verse 27 again. He says, I may, I may hear that you, of you that you are, here's the first one, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. So he gives this military image, all right? We know that Paul is chained up to a Roman guard even as he's riding. And so this image of the Roman soldiers, and you've seen it in movies, and you've seen it on TV, these soldiers who stand side by side, they're standing firm, they're not moving, they're not going anywhere. The enemy can advance, but they are holding their spot. They're holding their ground. And that's the image that Paul is pointing to here. They're holding their position even under attack. There's no compromise They're staying firm. They're standing firm. And during Paul's time, there would be just tremendous pressure, way more than we can imagine, tremendous pressure to cave in to the society's demands and the expectations of society. Because not only did the early church were viewed as strange and different by those around them, but they were also viewed as a threat. They were viewed as hostile toward the state because of following Jesus and being unwilling to worship the Caesar. And so they were strange. They were looked at as hostile, yet they were told to not abandon their post, stay at it. Their belief in Jesus, they were incompatible with the Roman way of living. And he says, you got to live as a citizen of heaven, not as a citizen of Rome. So becoming a Jesus follower would come with enormous risk. And then verse 27 again, he says, Standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Obviously, you know that we live in a culture that's more and more pushing Jesus out of everything. And more and more Christians are looked at as hostile and strange, for sure, every day. There was a time in American history where being part of a church was actually advantageous to your standing in the community. Those days are long, long gone. We know that, right? And and as these compromises come against the church, it's a very slow fade. And we look around and we see other churches who once stood strong on things, and now they just slowly cave in. It's amazing to me that how many churches, churches and pastors support abortion, right? I mean, it's in in. in I mean, and just with everything that happened over the weekend with Roe versus Wade and the good news for the church, we praise God that's happened. Obviously, our job is not over here, that abortion will still be available in states and the states will be able to make those laws themselves. But the heart is what the Christian, we as Christians, are trying to get at for people. You can stop all the behavior in the world, but if you don't win the heart to Christ, then they're still on their way to hell destined for destruction. And so we need to be re- reminded about that. But it's amazing of the number of pastors who just will refuse to understand that the sanctity of life exists. And, and this wasn't the case back in the early 70s when Roe v. Wade was began to be, when that became a court case in front of the Supreme Court. The, 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 actually, if you read about that, court decision, the Supreme Court at that time was very mixed on the fact, is this a baby, is it not a baby? And they sort of came up with a compromise because they knew that it was a baby. And how much more today do we know that that's a human life with the way that we're able to see ultrasounds in today's technology? But it's a very slow fade that happens. I was reminded of this in a different area, um, Baylor University, which is a historic Christian university. In 1999, they created the first center of a major university to study intelligent design. So this thing didn't just evolve. There's intelligent design. There's a creator behind it. And one of the professors named Douglas Henry, he's a professor of philosophy. He wrote this. He said, there is no dogma more prevalent within America high culture than that smart people outgrow God. The more educated, the more discerning, And wise one is, the less one is inclined to be a good, deeply pious Christian, the thinking goes. In higher education, this dogma gets expressed in the axiom of academic excellence, and Christian faithfulness is just incompatible. He says, history has shown that most religious-affiliated schools, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Brown, have renegotiated their identity and secularized. So if you're from these schools, he writes... You don't look back with pride at your Congregationalist or Methodist or whatever roots, but you view these things as relics of the past, which thankfully we've been liberated from. And so this is where we live, right? We live in a society that discounts Christianity, and they think you're strange. They think you're, you're unusual, and eventually you're going view, to be viewed as hostile toward the state. But Paul says, you've got to stand firm. And he says, the second thing, he says, you got to keep striving for the gospel. Verse 27, I I may hear that you of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This word strive is a very athletic word, and it has this picture of effort and discipline and endurance. And so Paul is saying, as we strive for the gospel, know that it's going to be difficult. It's not something that just comes easy. Striving for the gospel, striving to give the gospel, striving to live for the gospel takes much discipline and much effort. And Obviously, God is the one who gives us the strength to do these things. He's the one that empowers us, but that doesn't discount the fact that we have to make effort, that he gives us the strength and ability to do those things. And so Paul had in mind here just spreading the faith of the gospel, spreading the faith. And as, as Charles mentioned, as Tommy alluded to, I mean, this takes money. It does. It takes money to do ministry. And it takes money. And at a time where the economics are, are, seem to be turning down and the economy is getting maybe a little tight and all our bills have gone up, right, it's easy to forget what we're here for and the reason why we exist in the first place, which is for Jesus Christ, his renown, his glory, and begin to say, I've got to guard my stuff more, and i got to contribute less because it's impacting my bottom line. But this is a time that we need to send missionaries out. This is a time that we expand and grow. Right, Buzz? And and we need more and more missionaries to go, and we need to give so they can go. And we need to be faithful to our calling. So Paul's saying we're striving for the gospel. It takes effort. It takes discipline. It takes sacrifice. And then the third thing he says, we're not afraid of resistance or persecution. Verse 28. He says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So their opponents are going to be pressing in on them, but you're not to be frightened by them. And then he adds this. This is interesting. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. There's the God part. God's delivering. God's the one working. So the opponents, I think what he's getting at, they're going to see the Christians' joy even under fire, under duress, under persecution. They're going to see that, and they're going to know something is different or someone is different because that someone is Jesus working in their life. And it can only be explained by coming from something beyond themselves. Because we don't naturally, there's no way we naturally want to be given persecution, involved in persecution for our faith. It doesn't come natural. Nobody says, I desire that. And so Paul says, don't be afraid of this resistance. You're gonna, it's going to happen. You're going to be ostracized. You're going to be avoided. You're going to be looked at as being out of touch with the world. Your image, your reputation are going to be tarnished. And honestly, I think in some of our, time, our lifetimes, that even possibly our livelihoods could be threatened because of our faith. That's what was happening in Paul's day. That was what was happening in Philippi. And so Paul sums this section up by reminding them, this is a conflict, as I said from the beginning. There's real pain and there's real loss. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now you hear that I still have. And so this conflict, this struggle, this fight, this opposition that they're in, they're engaged in this. And Paul says, you saw it firsthand. Remember last week when we looked at the book of Acts when Paul was in Philippi? He got tossed in prison. They saw firsthand what happens when you live for the gospel and stand firm for the gospel. And so he says, you saw that and you know I'm still there. I'm I'm in prison, I'm locked up because of the gospel. And then in the first part of the verse he says, it's been granted to you for the sake. How many of you heard that in a gospel presentation when you came to Christ? Come to Jesus and get eternal life and suffer for him. All right, everybody come, come on. You're gonna suffer, you're gonna suffer. Nobody gets that, nobody gives that presentation but that's what Paul says happened. He he says that we're expected not only to believe, but to suffer. In fact, this was the same for Paul as well. Back in Acts chapter 9, when Paul had his road to Damascus experience, and that he saw Jesus, heard from Jesus, saw the bright light, he was blinded, then God reached out to Ananias to go to Paul, and to restore his sight, and to speak to him, and prophesy to him. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul knew right out of the gate. That was part of the deal. But sadly, contrast that to the American way of giving the gospel, which is Jesus will fix everything for you. He's going to bless you so much and fix everything for you. And you see, that's the danger where we're not on the agenda page of Jesus. Because then we go into it with this expectation. Man, I just get my family back in church, and my kids are just going to all of a sudden start acting right. They're going to be perfect, so let's go back to church. Come on, we're going back to church to fix our family. Marriage is tough. we to go. got to go to church, and that'll fix our marriage. Because we turn Jesus into a genie in the bottle where it's about him fixing our lives versus us signing up that I'm giving my life for the sake of the gospel. And I will tell you, husband and wife, parent, that your kids, more than anything else, need to see you living that way for the sake of the gospel. Then they'll see that you're real. They'll see that going to church is authenticated by the worthy life that you're living at home. Otherwise, they're going to look and say, what's this? Just another phase we're going through. Nothing will change. So where's your passion? Where's your heart? And so here's the head application. Living for Jesus is a battle. It's a battle. You've got to tell yourself that every single day when you walk out the door. And that's why I advocate every day starting in the Word, because every day in the Word you're going to be reminded about that. And then our heart application is, are you striving for Jesus or are you striving against Jesus? Because Paul said it's, it's, it's been granted to us. It's, it's been given to us the privilege of suffering for the sake of Christ. So this is not like all of a sudden something happens and God says, oh, yeah, yeah, I didn't really see that coming. God orchestrates these things in our lives, the suffering, the struggles. The ridicule, the funny looks, the not being invited out with the rest of the class, standing firm on a college campus and not being invited to where where the other guys in your dorm are going. Those are orchestrated by God. They're not just happenstance. They're orchestrated by him. He's granted us the privilege. You know why? Why does he allow that? Why does he cause that? Here's why. I'll, I'll quote from New Morning Mercies. This was probably a month ago. One of my favorite days. It says, The normal person simply doesn't esteem the spiritual value of hardship. Because of this, it tends to be difficult for us to stay on God's agenda page. If our our goal for our lives is temporal, personal happiness, whatever our definition of that may be, then we're going to live in a street-level agenda conflict with our Savior, no matter what our confessional theology is. Maybe. You see, from day one, God's communicated his purpose to you and I as Christians. What is that purpose? That we become more like Jesus Christ. And as much as our flesh would desire that that happens sitting under an umbrella at the beach, sipping on a pita colada, that's just not the way it happens. It happens when we're put under the fires and the pressures of temptations, of persecution. And through that, we become more and more like Jesus and look more and more like Jesus. And we especially look like him because he went to the cross. He was our example, that he suffered as an example for us. And so there should be no surprise what we signed up for. And so our hands application is this. I'm asking you to pray daily for the insight-giving, illuminating, and convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. Pray daily for the insight-giving, illuminating, and convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because otherwise, we'll never, ever be on the same agenda as God. Christ's likeness will be an afterthought because he's much better for us as a genie in the bottle. So what's it going to be? Will you dedicate your time in the mornings to say, I want your word, I want to know your truth, and I want the Holy Spirit to show me Point to me, my sin. Show me where I'm failing and falling. Show me where I'm being a selfish dad, where I'm being a bad parent, where all I'm trying to do is just get behavior to change, but I'm not taking the time and effort to speak to the heart of my kids. Show me at work where I tend to be away from my accountable system, and then my heart comes out to show who I really am. God, I want to change that. I want that to change. Holy Spirit, show me those things. And then give me the strength through your word to correct those so I can be more like Jesus every single day. Let's pray. Father God, this is not easy because we don't like to suffer. We like our comforts. We like our influence. We like power. We like control. And Christianity is so 180 from all of that. It's about taking up our cross denying ourselves and following you. And God, I pray you'll teach us more and more what that looks like practically, using Paul Tripp's language on street level, knowing what that looks like in our life. God, we thank you for your grace that just reaches and ministers to us because we've all fallen short of your glory and your greatness. And God, I pray that you allow us to be a church that truly is known far and wide because we're worthy of the gospel, not because we're perfect and we've earned anything, but because we understand your grace and we're seeking your grace. In Jesus' name we pray.